ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Okay, so we're on with uh, Dr. Peter Hackett. Uh, we're going to be sitting down to talk about uh, altitude sickness or acute mountain sickness. Um, super interested in this topic. I, I just mentioned to you that I had a bout of altitude sickness. Ah, it seems like it's been about a month, month and a half ago, 12,400 feet or excuse me, 10,400 feet. And it uh, it pretty much took me out of the game. And as I started looking into it, um, I just got very intrigued. There seems to be a maybe a hole in the information, um, a lot of repeat of the same information from place to place to place. But then I noticed that you guys do a ton of research. Um, so I can't wait to talk about this and, and hear, uh, hear what you have for us. But why don't we uh, do a quick intro and get some background on uh, on yourself, please? Okay. Um I'm a uh, professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and um, I've been doing high altitude research for 40 years now. Started in the Himalaya with the Himalayan Rescue Association, and I've done a lot of research on uh, Mount McKinley in Alaska, known as Denali. Uh, climbed Everest in 1981, doing medical research all the way to the top. I've done research in South American mountains, in Tibet, all over China and the Alps. It's been a great career because I get to spend so much of my time outdoors in the mountains, skiing and, uh, you know, whatnot. So uh, I've been pretty happy about it. And I feel like we've made a lot of progress in uh, in understanding altitude sickness. Now we just need to get a lot better about educating the public. 
And and maybe that's where the hole that I'm seeing is that is that what's available to the public or the information that you know it's being presented to us. Because forty years of research. Yeah, I mean, there's, pretty, there's pretty good sources of information online. Um, and then you know you come across articles in various media, but uh, there needs to be a more concerted effort. I agree, because it's so common, and there's so many people at risk. I guess the good news is that uh, it's generally not very serious. It's about like a hangover. Feels to tell you the truth. Well, you tell me. Did it feel like you had a hangover? That, that's what was interesting. So I'm not a huge drinker, right? I've I've had my share of hangovers, uh, no doubt. Um, but the what it, the effect for me was almost like this this intracranial pressure. Like it just, I mean, the head, my head just felt like I was. I had to get out of off the mountain. Uh, the pressure was just such, it was like the worst migraine you could have. Um, there was a point where, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to push it. Um, took some Advil, tried to go about my business. And I even got a little bit, a uh, little bit dizzy and we were on a 3d shoot. And uh, a couple times I drew back on my bow and my vision was blurred. Um, so, you know, everything I could do to get off the mountain, I tried, I dealt with it that day. That was a Saturday. And then Sunday morning I woke up uh, at four and I didn't sleep well at all. Woke up at about four and as fast as I could throw everything in the truck, I was just trying to drop elevation. And how quickly did you feel better on the way down? 7,500 feet. I remember seeing the marker. I remember my ears kind of equalizing. And I'm going to say it was alleviated by 50%. By the time I got down to Beaver, which is plus or minus that 5,000 foot mark, uh, the headache, there was a semblance of a headache, but it was virtually non-existent. That's such a typical story. And it it impacts a lot of hunters because uh, they may not be aware that there's such a risk at high altitude. Um, you were lucky in that uh, you recognized what was going on and you got down. Sometimes people will just take a sleeping pill or say, we'll tough it out, spend the night up there. The next day they feel crummy, but they don't know what's going on. They spend a second night and then they can get really severe complications, sometimes even die. We have... Not many, but a couple hunters a year might die out here in Colorado from altitude sickness. Uh, you know, it's it's not a high proportion by any means, but God, you'd, you'd hate to. I mean, when you go off on a hunting trip, you don't think you you think of the dangers of getting shot or a road wreck or getting charged or something. You don't think about altitude sickness, but you really need to take that into account anytime you're sleeping over. Well, 8,000 feet, but really, especially over 9,000 feet. So is, is that kind of that, that elevation that, and that's what I've read is 8,000 foot mark. But, you know, typically when I'm hunting Colorado, I'm, I'm based out at about 74, but then I'm up to about 9,000, 9,200 generally. And then we'll hit the uh, plateau there and we'll get about 10,000. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I've never, I've never had it. And one of the things that was interesting to me in researching it, um, and please correct me if this is wrong, but. Uh, they said that uh, the the younger you are, the more susceptible you are, and the better shape you're in, the more susceptible you are. And and I kind of likened to that. I've been doing a lot of running, uh, getting in in uh, elk season mode. Um, and I kind of it was like, man, I've been doing all this running, kicking my butt, and it seemed to affect me more this year than it ever has previously. Well, 
It's just not fair, is it? No, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we call altitude the great equalizer. Yes, sir. Because sedentary slobs from Chicago can do just as well as triathletes. Uh, and it's just kind of certainly counterintuitive. The danger is that people who are fit think they're immune. And because they're fit, they can go up faster. And the faster you go, the more likely you are to get sick. Now, you know, if you really work out and you get in shape, that's not going to make you more likely to get sick. But uh, but you can't feel that, oh boy, I'm in shape. I'm not, I don't have to worry about the altitude. That's that's the problem. Yeah, it was just interesting, like I said, the fact that, you know, and I've and I've been up high enough to where I've had, you know, a mild, a very mild headache. And that's usually something that's that's fairly controllable, right? A couple of Advil seem to help out or dropping elevation and going back up to elevation has, has kind of always been my game. But I've never experienced it uh, with, like I said, with that amount of what what felt like, you know, crani- intercranial pressure. Um, well, that's exactly what it is. What altitude were you when it came up? Uh, that was 10,002 is when I felt it. And how quickly had you come up to 10,002 from low altitude? Wow. So Beaver, I think Beaver's in that 5,000 foot range. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe 35, 40 minutes up the mountain. Middle of the oh. night, no one in front of me. Uh, me, you know, oh. blaring the music with the windows down. <laughs> So you had slept at 5,000 feet? No, I actually, I drove, and I think part of it too was the the, the lack of sleep. Um, but I drove, you know, from California. So I'm 117, um, you know, every day. Drove into Beaver and then, you know, went straight up the mountain and there I was. So you're talking, you know, maybe nine to 10 hours on the road. Straight yeah. Up. Well, you know, your case is a little a bit unusual because you hadn't slept at high altitude. You had just come straight up, but lots of people will do that and they hit a threshold where all of a sudden, wham, it hits them hard, especially if they've come up that day from very low altitude. The smart thing to do for hunters or climbers or skiers is to, if you're coming into the Sierra or Colorado or wherever, is to spend a night at around six or 7,000 feet before moving up higher in sleeping altitude. And that all it takes is one extra night at a, you know, at an intermediate altitude and your body will start acclimatizing. The body has an amazing ability to adapt, but it likes to have some time to do it. And what, what, if you can explain to us, what causes it? Well, you're right increased pressure in your head. So what happens is when you go to low altitude environment, there's less oxygen in the air. That causes the blood vessels in your brain to vasodilate, to open up, to try to get more blood, you know, red cells and oxygen into the brain tissues. And when your blood vessels dilate like that, it can cause pain because there's pain fibers on those blood vessels. It's a lot like a migraine. And if you go up more slowly, uh, it doesn't, they don't dilate quite as much. And then after three or four days at altitude, they, the blood vessels come back down towards normal and, and those pain fibers relax. So, you know, after three or four days, you don't get sick. <clears throat> and that's what we call acclimatization. The other thing that happens is that your, your body detects the low oxygen levels. And so it tells you to breathe more. 
And as a result, you feel a short of breath, especially when you're walking uphill with a heavy pack or doing any kind of exercise. You don't feel a short of breath at rest. But as soon as you start to exercise at high altitude, you feel a lot of shortness of breath. And that that's not dangerous. It doesn't mean you're sick. That's a normal response. But it's, a, it's you know, you're winded. You just can't perform like you could at a lower altitude. And you got to, you got to respect that. You know, you got to slow down. It's going to make you, you respect take, it. <laughs> yeah. You got to take more rests. You got to slow down. You know, if you're used to covering four miles an hour at the low altitude, forget it. Maybe you do two miles an hour at high altitude, you know, on a somewhat level or slightly uphill trail. So you got to, kind of take that into account when you're thinking about whether you're going to be packing out, you know, carcasses and stuff. I mean, you just can't perform like you could at low altitude. Mm-hmm. So there's a, my understanding and, and please uh, expand on this, but there, the, the amount of O2 in the air doesn't change. It's the barometric pressure and the lack of pressure at higher altitude and our bodies are working harder to get the same amount of O2 to feed the system. That's basically correct. The amount, see, it depends. Uh, you know, the air is always 21% oxygen. It doesn't matter if you're at the bottom of the of Death Valley or at the summit of Mount Everest. But at the summit of Mount Everest, there's only one third as much air as at sea level. So there's only one third the amount of oxygen even though it's 21%, it's 21% of one third. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, there's a lot fewer oxygen molecules. That's the better way to think of it. The percentage doesn't change, but the number of molecules sure does. And your body, your body starts to notice it at around 5,000 feet. And uh, that's when your breathing starts to increase a little bit. And then really, your body really kicks into gear at about 9,000 feet. That's when your breathing picks up, your heart rate picks up, and you can start to feel the side effects, you know, the symptoms. In Colorado here, about 25% of everyone that comes to sleep at 8,000 feet or higher will get what we call mountain sickness, which is this sensation of a hangover. And in most people, it lasts about 12 hours to 24 hours and goes away by itself. Uh, but in a small percentage, it gets worse and people can actually die. But fortunately, that's very uncommon. And, and what's the, what are the typical diagnosis um, that, we, that we can you know, self-diagnose that we would see as we increase uh, warning signs that, that should turn us around so we can get that, uh, that acclimatization down at lower altitude? Well, the first thing is bad headache and then dizziness. Um, you know, everybody has trouble sleeping at high altitude. That's really kind of normal at high altitude. Um, the real uh, those are the and sometimes nausea and the appetite certainly goes off. Once in a while, people will vomit, but that's that's fairly uncommon. So it really is like a hangover, headache, little dizziness. You, you just want to lay down. You don't. You, there's fatigue. You don't feel like doing much, and that's why we don't like people drinking a lot of high altitude. That especially that first or second night, because. You wake up in the morning and you feel miserable and you want to know if it's altitude, which is potentially dangerous, 
or whether it's because you had too much to drink the night before, you know? So that's why it's better not to drink. Plus, drinking alcohol suppresses your breathing a bit, which is the one thing you don't want at high altitude. So best to avoid alcohol until you've acclimatized after like, you know, two or three days. And then there's the the, uh, red flag signs. And those have to do with the brain and the lungs. So the red red flag signs that your brain isn't working is that uh, you can't walk a straight line. You start to lose your balance. And maybe you get confused or disoriented. Uh, that's all. It, you've, if you've got that, you just new to high altitude, you got to get out of there. So I'd like to do that walking test, you know, and have people walk heel to toe and see if they can uh, stay on a straight line. That's a really good test. And then the red flag for the lung is if you just can't breathe, you just you can't catch your air. I mean, you know, seriously, can't catch your air, not just a little bit short of breath. And uh, oftentimes there's a gurgling in the chest and then people start coughing up this frothy spit from their lungs. That is high altitude pulmonary edema. It happens to about one in 10,000 visitors to Colorado, which means we see a couple hundred a year. And that can be fatal. That requires going down immediately or oxygen. And there's uh, there's a couple of medications um, that people talk when well when they talk about altitude sickness. But to me, when I'm when I'm listening or reading, it it really involves uh, hate more than and that's the pulmonary edema um, more than anything. Correct. Well, there are medicines for the the pain over type of mountain sickness. One is uh, Advil, like you mentioned. Uh, that seems to work pretty well. Usually you have to take about three Advil, which is 600 milligrams. There's also a, a prescription medicine called Diamox that, you know, has to be prescribed by a physician that works pretty well. It speeds up that process of acclimatization. So you acclimatize faster and it helps prevent mountain sickness. There's really no good uh, vitamin or minerals or supplements. You know, there's a lot of myths out there like drinking electrolyte solutions will help. That's not true. Or drinking a lot of water will help. That's not true. Uh, You don't want to get dehydrated, but you don't want to overdo it with the water. Um, And people like to eat lightly at high altitude, but that doesn't really, hasn't really been shown to prevent mountain sickness. There's, There's not that much that's really helpful except going up more slowly. That's the number one thing. And then, Maybe, you know, taking some Advil. You can take it in uh, in advance of any symptoms or you can wait till you get, start to get the headache and then take it. Uh, you know, a lot of places sell these little oxygen canisters. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, there's just not enough oxygen in there to do much good. Uh, you know, there's only about five minutes worth of oxygen in there if, if you're breathing that from that canister. So... It can help, but then uh, if you were sick, you'd probably get sick when it wears off. And I was going to say that's, that's probably only as good as that supply lasts, right? Because most, most of those are kind of a push right. button, you know, I don't know, maybe a second kind of hit of, of O2 uh, that you're getting from those. 
That's right. The body can't store oxygen. It only gets whatever you have in each breath. And one of the things, and I've done that for years, uh, one of the things I read, I don't remember where I saw it, but they uh, chlorophyll um, is that is that one of those, you know, remedies that are kind of a myth. Um, what they yeah. say is that the chlorophyll allows your body to utilize the oxygen or the O2 better. Yeah. You know, it, it, it hasn't been well studied, but what little evidence, there is, I mean, there isn't any evidence that really helps. You know, you, you can find all sorts of testimonials online for all sorts of stuff, but very few of those claims have been subjected to real science and very few of them pan out. So when you look at, you know, you said you were uh, in the Himalayas, when you look at a situation like that, is that just adaptation over, you know, eons or generations um, where these where these people can... Uh, just deal with that high altitude, that up and down. That's just that acclimatization over long periods. And yeah, they're they're they've been at altitude for thousands of years. The people that live there, and they're totally acclimatized, and they can run circles around any kind of tourist. You know, <laughs> they're just amazing. They're unbelievable. I mean, you've heard the Sherpas are very famous for what they do. And that's, that's why, because they're born and raised, not just because they're born and raised, but because they've had all these evolutionary changes over thousands of years. And have you guys done any research? I mean, in terms of, um, of those adaptations and, and that, uh, evolution, if you will, to adapt to that, that high altitude. We have, and we found a number of genes that have changed uh, during um, you know the last few thousand years, and uh, we found a lot of adaptations. For example, the Himalayan natives, their blood doesn't get thick, which is a problem in uh, tourists that go to high altitude for a long period of time. The blood gets too thick; it causes blood clots and other problems, high blood pressure, and all sorts of problems. But uh, they don't have that issue. And they breathe a lot, and their babies are normal birth weight. Unlike like here in Colorado, the women that deliver at high altitude, their babies are smaller, and they don't have the lung problems that that other people have. And their lungs are bigger, and they can move more oxygen into their blood. And what oxygen is in their blood, they can use more efficiently. Yeah, we've studied those people and yaks and other animals that have the same kind of uh, adaptations. Wow. So there's nothing that we're going to do as uh, flatlanders, so to speak, to get caught up with the with the uh, folks of the Himalayas at this point. Well, you could you could try some gene transfer experiments. <laughs> I'll leave the experiments to the. Uh, never mind. I'll get into a whole mess of things there with that one. <laughs> yes, sir. So, uh, risk factors are there? Are there risk factors that make uh, one a person more susceptible um, to AMS than another? Yes. Yes, there are. Well. Um, I mean, really, the main risk factor is how fast you go up and how high you go. So even if you're genetically predisposed or, or even if you're genetically, you know, can tolerate hypoxia, 
Uh, if you go too high, too fast, you'll get sick no matter what. But there are some people that are just born not to do very well at high altitude and some that are born to do better. And we understand some of that uh, genetics. Uh, the only risk factors that you could identify, number one, is if you've gone to altitude before and gotten sick, <laughs> then you've got a higher chance of getting sick the next time you go to high altitude, unless you go up more slowly. Uh, number two would be um, if you have certain conditions like lung disease in particular. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot more. There's Many women seem to have about the same amount. As you mentioned, younger people can be a little more susceptible. It's curious that the older generations, like people over 50, tend to do better. We think it's because their brains are a little smaller and they got a little more room to dwell. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, it's very, very. You can't really predict before you go up. Uh, you know, if you're a healthy person, there's no way to know unless you just go up and see what happens. And so, we advise that if you don't know how you're going to do and you're going to go to high altitude, it's better to introduce yourself to the altitude gradually. Like, you know, the, what you want to avoid is going from sea level to sleeping over nine thousand feet in one. One day, that's what you want to avoid. So altitude to 7,000 is fine. Sleep there at night and then go sleep at 9,000. And I, I, and that, I have that, to lend my my hit of this to that because typically, like I said, when I'll go up and I mean, I've drove, you know, through eight, 18 hours to get to, a, you know, a spot. And then typically it's in that seven seventy five hundred range. Uh, we'll crash out, you know, get some rest and then pack the west, rest of the way up. Yeah, but that's, you know, that's pretty rapid. And the other thing is you're, you're, you're hauling a lot of stuff and you're working hard. And that's a risk factor. Uh, overexertion is a risk factor. Um, you know, there's not much else in terms of risk factors. Now, what about pre-existing medical conditions? If, if you know, you, you mentioned, yeah. you know, some type of lung disease, but if you have a cardiopulmonary issue, uh, yes, high blood very pressure. Important, very important point. A lot of the hunters that come out here to Colorado that end up dead or in the hospital had pre-existing heart disease that maybe they didn't even know about, or they did know about it, but didn't realize that, it could be a problem at high altitude, you know. Lung disease definitely uh, is an issue. And um, anemia, surprisingly, isn't too much of an issue, but people who are anemic will feel more shorter breath. Diabetes is not a not a, an issue at high altitude. High blood pressure can be. It needs to be well-controlled. I mean, the general idea is if you have a pre-existing medical condition, like heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, you better make sure it's under good control before you go up to high altitude. Secondly, you better have a, an idea, a plan to how you're going to get down or get help if you get into trouble. And maybe that means taking a little extra medication if your blood pressure is going out of control or, you know, making sure you got a good supply of nitroglycerin if you use that for heart pain, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, interestingly, pregnancy seems to be okay. It doesn't seem to be bothered much by up to, sleeping up to around 10,000 feet. And little kids do generally about the same as adults. They do okay. Uh, what else? I mean, that covers most of it. 
you need good lungs. That's the main thing. And I guess that would lead us into, I mean, outside of, outside of understanding all that um, and, and preparing for it, because it is, and I found it to be very, very debilitating. Um, yeah. And, and like you said earlier, you know, you, you want to try and push it, uh, especially, especially on a hunt you've planned for a year. Um, you yeah. know, folks are going to push the envelope a little bit, but it is it is debilitating and, and quite rapidly um, in terms of preparation. Um, what do you, what do you do? I've been running and that's one of the things, you know, it's I'll, I go on mountain runs at least once a week and I'm starting my runs generally pretty low at like 3000 feet. Uh, and then I'm running as high as, you know, 75, uh, the highest has been 85 thus far. Didn't, didn't even matter. Um, you see like the elevation mask. Um, and I get that those don't stim or simulate that high altitude. The one thing I thought about them was, with the exertion, right, or the rapid breathing that could help to strengthen the diaphragm using those as resistance training, I guess, for the diaphragm, um, as I was looking into this stuff, trying to understand it a bit more. So what do we do in terms of preparation um, outside of being at altitude frequently? It's important to be fit, but it doesn't have anything to do with altitude sickness, but you know, let's say you get a mild, like you get a hangover type feeling and you go, Oh, I got mountain sickness. Well, if you're not fit, it, it can make your trip miserable uh, to have that on top of it. And you're going to turn around, but if you're really fit, maybe you can push through it or put up with it for a while. Plus if you're fit, you can move uh, better over terrain. You can get down faster. You can get around faster. You can help out your buddies faster. And you know, you can carry your buddy's load when your buddy's getting sick. <laughs> I mean, it's important to be fit, but it's not a guarantee for not getting altitude sickness. There's really nothing else you can do. I mean, your training runs some ideal, you know, you get a little bit of altitude in there. The elevation mask uh, does help train your diaphragm and it's good to have a strong diaphragm. We haven't done any studies yet to show that it, that can actually improve your oxygen levels at high altitude or prevent mountain sickness. But we are planning some studies on that. There's not much else you can do. Uh, you know, a reasonable level of fitness, avoiding alcohol the first uh, 24, 48 hours, not going up too fast, not sleeping over 9,000 without an intermediate night. I mean, if you just do those three or four things, you, you know, you're generally going to do fine. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was like, man, this is going to be forever. Um, just, just because of the effect that I felt, it, it just seemed like, man, there, there's got to be more to do with this. Um, and, and I got to think that you know that that week, or excuse me, once a week exposure um, isn't going to do it. I mean, you're talking. I'd have to be three, four, five days a week up at eight thousand plus to really acclimatized prior to a hunt. Cause I have people that, that saw me, you know, post or talk about it or whatever. And were like, you know, asking me questions, Hey, what do I do here? Um, how do I prepare for this? Are you right? You know, if you're going to, well, I mean, probably, you know, people are don't have as much time as they like. Right. But the, 
you know, if they're coming out to Colorado and they know they're going to sleep at 10,000, they should come out a couple of days in advance just to get used to the altitude, just hang out. Visit Telluride, Crested Butte, Summit County, you know, those really high places and get some altitude under your belt before you start carrying a heavy pack and moving uphill and going hunting. And what about, you know, for, for me, like I'll, I'll drive in, so I'll make the drive. My, my plan at this point after experiencing this, um, is I'll probably, you know, find a town that has a motel or someplace I could sleep in the truck, um, and, and get that, that day or so in, uh, what about folks flying in the, so the, you know, but just because you're up at 30,000 in the plane doesn't mean <laughs> that pressure is the same. Right. Um, so that would yeah. be the same. You're flying in, call it to Denver, uh, spending the day in Denver, uh, may help yeah. before you get in the rental and head to the, uh, to the mountain. Yeah. Our studies show that if you spend one night in Denver, you'll drop the risk of mountain sickness by about half. But even better than that is leaving Denver and driving partway up and trying to find a place to sleep at around 7,000. It's a little more stim stimulation for your body to start adjusting to the altitude. And it's low enough where you're not going to get sick. So 7,000 is ideal. But Denver is very helpful. I mean, the worst thing is flying to Denver, hop in a vehicle, drive up to 9,000 feet, and wham. You know, that's just asking for trouble. Sleeping at 9,000 feet. That's what I'm talking about. And and what do do we understand why that's an issue? I mean, if it's about acclimatization and we're not exerting effort, do we understand why that that there's that cutoff in that seven to eight thousand range for that first night? It's just the way the body adapts. Yeah, uh, nine thousand feet is the kind of the magic number where your blood oxygen levels start to drop dramatically. And during sleep, you don't breathe as much, and so your oxygen levels get lower. And that's why people wake up in the morning with that hangover feeling or the bad headache. Um, and it, well, it's just that it, we know that if you spend a couple nights or you know, at least one, somewhere around seven or 8,000, it starts to kick in the acclimatization process, but you below the danger level. So it's, it's helpful. So that lack of O2 in, 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 you know, with the sleep is that, um, my sleeping pattern was, was totally broken. I think I was probably up every 35 to 40 minutes, call it, um, when I was dealing with that, does that have something to do? Is that your body saying, Hey, you know, breathe or. Yes. It's a couple things. One is direct effect of low oxygen levels on the sleep centers of the brain that cause you to have more interruptions, lighter sleep. And then secondly is this uh, abnormal breathing pattern you develop during the night, which can make you wake up feeling like you suddenly need to take a breath. And that can be very uncomfortable. It's not dangerous, but it can be very uncomfortable. It can freak people out. So what happens, they feel like they're suffocating. A lot of times they'll turn around or leave, but that, you know, they don't really have to, it's just a nuisance. So this one, I mean, I, I'm a child at heart, right? So it, it makes me laugh a little bit. But one of the things that I've noticed, um, and this has been for years going to altitude, is uh, gas, flatulence. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that's pretty interesting, if you can explain that, because I, I never understood it. The last time I was like, man, my stomach was just going crazy. I was like, what is going on here? And yeah, yeah if you could explain... 
Well, it's a, it's a, it's an effect of uh, going to high altitude. Yeah. So your, your intestines, all the bacteria in your intestines are making them up the same amount of gas as they would at, at back home. But since the barometric pressure, let's say you're at 8,000 feet. So the barometric pressure is down 25%. That means the gas is, is going to expand. Uh, considerably by, by actually by more than 25%. So, um, you end up with a lot more gas, a lot higher volume of gas. <laughs> and it causes oh, a lot more farting. And, uh, we actually have a term for it, HAFE, H-A-F-E, which is high altitude flatus expulsion. <laughs> yeah, you know. Like I said, I'm a child. Sorry for laughing. It's serious stuff though. <laughs> but, uh, you know, air expands. So, you know, if you got, you bring a bag of potato chips up to 8,000 feet, it's going to be tight. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a little bit of air trapped in the, in the root canal or in your tooth, it's going to expand and hurt like hell. Oh, geez. If you got air trapped anywhere in your body where it can't just easily get out, it's going to cause problems. So, um, I mean, that's not something that comes up very often, but no, but (laughs) yeah, it can be, it can be, an issue um yeah you know <laughs> but yeah well the farting for sure i mean there's no question there's a heck of a lot more farting going on and uh you know but most people just joke about it yeah that's and that's <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly why i brought it up we walked around yeah. the mountain on that 3d shoot and it got to the point my buddies looked at me and they just shook their head and they're like goodness man and this shoot was i mean that, that course was five miles long it seemed like every yeah, yeah. fifth or sixth step and it was just what's going on here and yeah. and i don't eat bad right so i'm going what did i eat that that's causing yeah. this and i just started to equate it with the headache and everything else and i'm like this this has to be from the altitude. Exactly right. And it, it doesn't have anything to do with mountain sickness. And it's actually hafe. That's that's and I'm gonna I'll yeah. be reading that one tonight just to, <laughs> just to get yeah. <laughs> just to get some more yeah. laughs. Yeah. <laughs> definitely yeah. interesting, uh definitely interesting topic, but something, you know, and I don't want to make light of it, right? It is very serious and it, it's debilitating and it, you know, it doesn't have a, a high mortality, but it is an area of concern. A lot of us are coming to places like Colorado with little to no exposure. And as we see more uh, hunters come from out east or, you know, the Midwest where they're, pre- you know, pretty much flat, um, it, it can be a concern. So I, I appreciate you sharing yeah. some time with us. Yeah, you know, in the local ER, I'm an ER doc as well as an altitude specialist. So we, we keep a running tally during hunting season. We got elk on one side, hunters on the other. It'd be like, you know, the first day, elk three, hunter zero, or the next day, be, <laughs> elk one, hunters three. You know, we kind of keep track. But, uh, you know, I mean, in general, the hunters do okay. Um, but every once in a while, they die or they... they more often, they just have to turn around and you know, it wrecks the trip. They paid a lot of money. They've been planning on it. So taking an extra day to acclimatize to the altitude, it's probably well worth it. Absolutely. 
and and guys don't want to do that right because it's you know i got seven days or ten days and borrowing a day for travel on either side now borrowing a day for acclimatization you know you just took that 10-day trip made it a seven-day trip or you know you're, you're cutting down your time and, and guys don't want to do that but i think it's serious enough that we really need to be looking at that well i'm glad you're getting the information out there we're sure trying. So if you don't mind, uh, if we can, if you have any uh, resources that folks can get online or, um, you know, get some information, read further up on some of your research and uh, what's available just to expand that knowledge base, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, people can go to my website. I haven't updated it a lot, but it's altitudemedicine.org. And um it's got, you know, uh, links in there to other websites and whatnot. And uh, it's kind of especially geared for people coming to Colorado. And uh, WebMD has an okay section on high altitude. And, uh, you know, you just want to avoid some of these, you know, wacko sites that are telling you chlorophyll is going to really help or <laughs> as, I, as I take my 18 drops of, uh, of nasty lemon tasting chlorophyll a day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there is information out there. You just, you know, you gotta be aware of what's a reputable site. And, uh, and I think just, I think the site altitude.org, that's a uh, British site, but it's pretty good. And the UIAA, that's the, um, International Union of Alpinists, they have a site, U-I-A-A dot, probably O-R-G, okay. I'm not sure. So, you know, there are there is information out there. Wonderful. Well, I certainly appreciate the time. Um, okay. We'll, uh, nice to chat. Yeah, really absolutely. Your efforts at education. Yes, sir. I, uh, I want to make sure that all my all my brethren out there are uh, staying safe and have the information so they are successful in their hunting season. So definitely appreciate it. Cool. If you're interested in learning a little more about Dr. Hackett's research, head over to altitudemed.org. Thank you for listening. Follow Western Contours on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, and sign up at westerncontours.com. Episodes are available on most major platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down.